Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. Before we begin, I'd like to recognize that five years ago, in February 2017, my very best friend, Greg LeClaire, passed away. We met in our very first week of our first year at the University of Western Ontario, way back in 1989, and had been best of friends ever since. I bring Greg up now, ahead of this interview, with TIFF CEO Cameron Bailey, because Greg was such a huge TIFF supporter, going all the way back to 1993. Every September, Greg would coordinate a massive ticket purchase and rally all his friends and family to do TIFF the right way. He literally would book off work and every single day would attend screenings. In fact, usually multiple movies each day for the duration of the festival. Most memorably, he would curate his ticket selections to meet the needs of the particular friend or work colleague or family member in question. Midnight madness for some, big time galas for others, dry Finnish comedies with subtitles for me. And because his birthday fell during the festival on September 11th, Yes, that's September 11th. He also managed to string out his birthday celebrations for the entire 11 days. So to his mom, Susan, and his brother, Matt, and his sister, Jessica, and his entire family, an incredible multitude of friends, Tiff is an annual reminder of what a great guy Greg was, how much we miss him, and how much we continue to think about him today. This episode of Toronto Legends is dedicated to our friend, Greg LeClaire. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Cameron Bailey. Cameron is the CEO of the Toronto International Film Festival, better known as TIFF. TIFF is a not-for-profit cultural organization with a mission to transform the way people see the world through film. We are all excited for its return on September 8th for its 47th edition, one of the world's biggest and most important film festivals. It will be 11 days of international and Canadian cinema, special events featuring some of the biggest names in film, and the renowned industry conference offering diverse and innovative perspectives on the art and business of film. Cameron brings a comprehensive wealth of experience to his position, and under his lead, TIFF has continued to grow in size and significance with each passing year. It's no wonder that Toronto Life magazine has named Cameron Bailey one of Toronto's 50 most influential people. Welcome, Cameron, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thanks so much, Andrew. I'm good. I'm sitting in my office here at TIFF Bell Lightbox in downtown Toronto. I would normally start by asking how your summer is going, but with the 2022 Toronto International Film Festival beginning in just two weeks, I will instead ask, how much sleep are you getting these days? <laughs> you know, I'm actually, I'm okay. I'm, I think I'm getting enough sleep. Um, we work all year round putting the festival together. It does get busier come August, but um, we've been, uh, you know, we've been putting in a lot of hours, a lot of effort to make sure this is a great festival for our audience. And it's our first festival that is fully back in person uh, this year. So we're excited to do that. And we've been planning, we've been working on it. I wonder if you feel like a swan, all gracious and calm and cool above <laughs> the water, but with legs and feet furiously paddling just below the surface. Well, it is the time of year when, um, you know, 
the program is set, our program book is out, the schedule is out there, we've let everybody know what we're going to be showing, but there's all of the little details. So yes, we are scurrying around making sure that all of those little details are nailed down. Let's get right into it, Cameron. What can we expect from TIFF 2022? You know, it's going to be a great festival. We're thrilled with the lineup of films, with the guests who are coming to town. Uh, we're back uh, very close to the size and scale of our festival in pre-pandemic. Um, but it's, this is also an opportunity for us to, to make some improvements. Uh, so this is a, a walkable festival. All of our major venues are within a roughly a five-minute walking radius right in downtown Toronto, centered around King Street and John. And, uh, and you're going to be able to see great movies, bump into people, have those conversations that we haven't been able to have. I think we've all missed that opportunity to watch movies together. It's great to watch them at home, but um, there's something different when you're watching a movie and feeling it with hundreds of strangers as well. And, and those emotions are always amplified. So everything from the new Steven Spielberg film, The Fablemans, to the sequel to, to Knives Out called Glass Onion, uh, to uh, a great Sidney Poitier documentary that Oprah Winfrey is produced and she'll be coming to town for that. Um, Nick Cage, you know, some great Korean stars coming in from Korea, all kinds of things happening. Well, let's do some name dropping because that's what the average person like me loves. What celebrities are you expecting to be in Toronto this year? Um, you know, there are so many and uh, I so I, I will just maybe give a little bit of a taste. Um, you know, I mentioned Nicolas Cage, um, Oprah Winfrey. Uh, we're expecting Daniel Craig with the Knives Out sequel. He's one of the stars of that film. Um, we have Jennifer Lawrence in a brand new movie that we're making the world premiere of uh, called Causeway. Uh, many, many more. Uh, we have um, Shabana Azmi from India. We have uh, Lee Jung Jae, who is the star of the Squid Game series that we were all watching uh, not too long ago. He's got a movie called Hunt, and he's coming uh, with um, you know uh, the team from that film, including some other Korean stars as well. So there's all kinds of people coming, not just from Hollywood, but from stars from all over the world. That's a great point. You really highlight the international nature of the festival. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited too. I've been I've been spending all summer looking for Arnold Schwarzenegger on his bicycle. So now this gives me some <laughs> some new celebrities to look for. Cameron, with your permission, let's please go all the way back and get your story. Please tell us where were you born and tell us a little about your upbringing. Sure. Uh, I was born in England, uh, in London, England, in the Wembley neighborhood. If you know Wembley Stadium uh, in the UK, I was born almost in the shadow of Wembley Stadium. Uh, my parents are both from Barbados. They had left uh, Barbados and gone to England for their education when they were teenagers. And um, and my sister and I were born there. I spent only the first four years of my life in England. And then my sister and I were shipped off and quite literally shipped on a ship from, uh, from England to Barbados, which took weeks, of course. And uh, then we lived with our grandparents um, for four years. So I started school in Barbados in a one-room schoolhouse uh, in the countryside. You know, my, my grandfather uh, had some sugarcane land, and he also kept a cow and pigs and chickens. So I grew up in that world for a while. And then when I was almost eight years old, I came to Toronto and lived in the suburbs. And I've been here pretty much since then. I uh, went to school at Western University, lived in New York for one year, but I've otherwise been a Torontonian ever since. And Cameron, what brought you to Canada at the age of eight? 
Well, uh, my uh, mother had moved from England to uh, to Toronto uh, in the meantime, while my sister and I were in Barbados. Uh, she was a nurse uh, for many years. She worked at North York General Hospital, was an emergency room nurse. I can only imagine what that work is like, but she did tell some pretty wild stories sometimes. Uh, and uh, she, she sent for us, and, and so we came and we started... Um, uh, school again with um, living with her in Toronto in the suburbs and we lived in North York we lived in Thornhill north of Toronto we lived in Scarborough uh, and uh, and I, I got to know a lot of the city before making my permanent home downtown and let's talk a little more about your Toronto days high school junior high neighborhoods what, what are your fondest memories of growing up in Toronto you know, I sometimes I, I still drive around the old neighborhoods where I, I went to elementary school and um, and then middle school and high school uh, because my my wife's family lives up where up close to where I used to live. And um, and it's amazing how much things have changed. But I remember just open fields up by Don Mills and Finch, you know, and we lived in in new apartments, they uh, public housing apartments. Uh, that were brand new at the time. And, you know, I just remember feeling free and roaming around those neighborhoods and making tree forts and hanging out, you know, just, it just seemed like it was endless space to explore. And now, of course, there's lots of plazas and malls and condo buildings and stuff in those areas, but it felt almost like being on the edge of wilderness, at least my idea of wilderness as an 11-year-old at the time. Uh, and then I lived in Thornhill for many years and and got to understand class, I think, in a new way, because, um, you know, we were living in a fairly wealthy neighborhood. We were not wealthy ourselves. Uh, and so most of my school friends were from families that were better off than me. And I got to understand what that means and to learn to move in those environments and how to navigate uh, something like middle school and high school when you can't afford all of the, the clothes and the gear and all of the things that your friends can. Uh, and that was a real lesson for me as well. I think it, it gave me some life skills that I probably still use today. Well, shout out to the, to the neighborhoods, Cameron, because Don Mills and Finch, I grew up at Vic Park and, and Van Horn. Okay. Just around the corner. I know it. I know it well. <laughs> and I had that Esso station, uh, Don Mills and Finch. <laughs> yeah. I was a franchisee for four years, so I was oh there. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Zion Heights, A.Y. Jackson. Yes. Why don't you shout out what's, what schools did you That's go to? That's right. So um, I went to McNichol uh, Public School for uh, grades five and six. I went to Forest Manor before that. That's around Fairview Mall at Shepherd and uh, Don Mills. Uh, there's, yeah, so there's a subway station there now, which didn't exist when I was a kid. Uh, and and Cameron, Fairview Mall, at your time and my time, one, yes. one story. That's it was right. one story. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I, I have memories of just sort of following my mom around when she was looking for winter boots. It felt like it was all day long <laughs> in Fairview Mall. So I remember it well. Uh, and then Thornhill, I went to um, into Woodland uh, Senior Public School and then to Thornhill Secondary. Um, and I spent all at that time five years because we had grade 13 back then. Yes. Uh, at Thornhill Secondary. I was in the band there, ran track for a little bit. And I have very good memories there, uh, including one great school teacher in grade 13 uh, English class who was very formative for me named Miss Glasso, who I will always remember, who really encouraged me to read more and to write more. I always loved books. And she just said, just keep going and was very, very um, encouraging. And I think that really helped a lot. Isn't that incredible? We all have people we come across, but for you to have such vivid memories as someone who was 
really helpful to you. That's fantastic. Mm -hmm. When you finished high school, Cameron, where did you go from there? I went to London, Ontario, to what was then called the University of Western Ontario, now Western University. Uh, I went to study English literature and language with the aim of eventually becoming a journalist. And okay. they have a good um, journalism school there as well. Uh, and so I, I thought I would start in English lit and then move into journalism. In the end, I didn't do that at all. And that's the great thing about that age, college and university. You're still figuring out who you are. And um, I knew I loved reading. I loved writing. Uh, I, I loved ex exploring the world through language. Um, but during the course of my, um, my time there, I took a film course. It was kind of called, I think, Contemporary World Cinema. And it began outside of Hollywood with a film by Jean-Luc Godard called Breathless. And then it went everywhere else but Hollywood. So a lot of European cinema, Asian cinema, Latin American cinema, cinema from all over the world, which I had never imagined before. And I saw that movies could do so much more than just entertain. And that was what got me into it. Um, I'd been writing for the campus newspaper, the Gazette, at the time and decided I'd start writing about movies. And um, one thing led to another. I finished my degree in English literature, but from the time of that first film course, I knew that film was really going to be what I wanted to pursue. Well, you had no idea when you came on today how simpatico you and I are. This is like oh, a yeah? meeting of great alumni. I also <laughs> Fantastic. was at University of Western Ontario. It's oh, funny. cool. We all have to say it was called that. Now it's Western <laughs> University. Yeah. I, I too love London. I too had such a great experience there. Talk a little about your experience at Western. Were you in residence? Was it your first time living alone? Do you still keep in touch with people from those days? Um, yeah, I do. You know, uh, one of my... Uh, closest friends now who who uh, a friend named Joel who writes for the Kitchener Waterloo record I met when we were uh, entertainment editors together at the Western University Gazette I also worked for CHRW the uh, radio station there uh, as did my wife she was five uh, years behind me but she also worked at the radio station um, and uh, I lived off campus from year one um, I don't know, residence never really appealed to me, so I, I, I found a couple of roommates, lived in a basement apartment just off campus. Uh, wasn't pretty, <laughs> but I, I learned how to take care of myself, how to cook mac, for myself. Mac and cheese, chicken nuggets. Yeah, you know, all of that kind of stuff. The stuff that when you're, what was I, 18, 19 years old, you, you're just trying to figure out how to keep yourself alive, you know? Uh, and you don't have your, your mom to take care of you or, you know, anybody else to advise you. My older sister was back in Toronto, so I was truly on my own. And, um, and actually, I found that very valuable. And now as a parent, I can see how you need moments like that. Where you're thrown into an entirely new environment. You just have to figure it out. So I did. Have you been back to campus, I have to ask, since you graduated? You know, I have been a few times. I'm now involved um, with the School for Advanced Studies of, in Arts and Humanities um, at Western uh, as one of their advisory committee members. So I do go back sometimes for those things. Um, I was honored uh, not too long ago with um, an honorary degree, an honorary doctorate from, from Western. So I went back to, to dress up in the, the gown and the, the cap and, uh, and give a little speech to the the graduates so that was that was a lot of fun to do too what an honor congratulations that must have been thank you incredibly great feeling double degree yes and uh, i have to tell you an embarrassing story I, I hadn't been back in about 25 years and i i got a 15 year old so i dragged mm -hmm. her out there we were out for our ringette tournament and i dragged her out to campus to show off everything dad had done i couldn't mm -hmm. find 
any of the buildings I <laughs> yes. went to. I, it's I was all so different. Lost. It, yeah, very, I mean, apart from different. the very old building, it's buildings like university, college, etc. It's it's very different now. They've built all kinds of new stuff. Now, after you finished Cameron at Western, you started your career. And if I have the timeline right, this is about 1988 when you joined Now Magazine, writing film reviews and conducting interviews for what was Toronto's leading weekly newspaper. Physical newspapers. How, how crazy can people even imagine that? Imagine, yeah. And, you know, that was actually the, the heyday of alternative weeklies uh, all across North America. Every major city had one. Village Voice in New York, the Los Angeles uh, LA Weekly. Um, Georgia Strait in Vancouver, and in Toronto it was now. And um, I, I worked alongside some great people. John Harkness was the film critic, the lead film critic at the time. Um, he um, interviewed me and uh, eventually uh, was part of the hiring process to bring me on board. And I got to write about all different kinds of movies. I think Die Hard was my, my test review, the wow. original Die Hard, which was kind of cool to do. But, but I wrote about Hollywood movies, experimental film, documentaries, a lot of Canadian film. Got a chance to really showcase a lot of Canadian talent in the pages of now and local talent, Toronto talent, which was great. You know, we put people like, uh, you know, John Grayson and um, and Kika Thorne and, you know, these these kind of what were then called fringe or experimental filmmakers um, into the pages of a newspaper that reached hundreds of thousands of people. And that was a real privilege as well. And something that sadly alternative weeklies don't get to do in the same way anymore now is is wrapping up its print publication, it seems these days, and it's going to be just online uh, for a while. But um, but they served a really important purpose in, in really surfacing culture that was not mainstream yet. Whether mm -hmm. Those were indie bands or up and coming comedians or filmmakers, visual artists, all of them were in now. And not to age you, Cameron, but this was pre-internet, pre-social media. So this was how people could find out about what was going on. That's right. That's right. I remember the you know, very, very early stages of, of online communication. The year that I lived in New York, I continued to write for now. I was seeing films in New York and reviewing them for the pages of now in Toronto. And I would have to send the, the files back to Toronto through this very archaic dial-up internet file sending process. It's really unimaginable today, you know, with the speed of how things move. Uh, so, I, I, yeah, I, I, I kind of grew up alongside the rise of uh, online culture. Um, but at the time, yeah, physical newspapers that you waited for every Thursday when the, the weeklies came out and, and then you figured out what you were going to do that weekend. That's, uh, it seems like another time, but I remember it vividly myself. Now, Cameron, during your time writing for Now, you also joined the Toronto International Film Festival as a programmer. How did this come about? Well, in a, in a kind of a funny way, um, Piers Handling was leading the programming for, uh, for the Toronto F Film Festival. It was called the Festival of Festivals at that time. And um, he then became CEO later on. But he had seen, I guess, some of my writing, and I also began to contribute to some programming around town on, on a volunteer basis. I was part of a group that put together a retrospective devoted to the uh, Black Canadian filmmaker Jennifer Hodge de Silva uh, in Toronto at an independent theater called the Euclid, and another one devoted to Paul Robeson. And he invited me out for lunch and, and said, you know, we have a position opening um, on the programming team. Do you want to come and select movies for TIFF? And um, I said, no. 
because <laughs> why did you why? say no? I know. But look, I mean, I was very young. I was really just what two years out of university. I was actually still working on a, a graduate degree at York University that I never completed, I'm ashamed to say, uh, because I got busy. Um, but, uh, but I said no because I didn't think I was ready. Uh, I thought that I needed more experience, that working for such a prestigious festival was something that I needed to make sure I was informed enough and educated enough about film to do. So I said no that time. And then bizarrely, he came back to me the following year and said, you know what, we have another position opening and I really want you to do it. And uh, that time I'd smartened up and I'd learned a lot more. And I said yes. <laughs> well, thank goodness he came back to you. And, and doesn't that show it? someone's got confidence in you? Perhaps yeah. even more confidence in you than you had in yourself. Uh, yeah. What a great step. Yeah, it was uh, it was great, and and Piers really was um, such a, a formative influence on my career um, th over many years. He and I went to uh, Africa to the first time. There's a big Pan African film festival in Burkina Faso, in the capital, which is called Ouagadougou, and we flew there together, landed on African soil for the very first time, and that really opened a whole new chapter in my work and my life as well. I discovered a whole world of people who were devoted to African cinema, the people who made the films and promoted them and showed them around the world and that prompted me to start a program called planet africa at the film festival in 1995 which ran for over the course of a decade in, in total and that was devoted to bringing films from the african continent and the african diaspora uh, to the festival and that really injected a kind of a new spirit into the festival as well and i, I really uh, you know, I had um, uh, cajoled and persuaded peers to to go along on this ride with me, and he did, to his credit, and um, and it was uh, something that really made a change in the festival as well. Well, subsequent to that, in 2012, you were named artistic director, and then fast forwarding to 2021, when you were appointed the chief executive officer of TIFF, top of the heap. You've now been with the organization for quite a period of time. You've seen all the iterations. Where is the festival today? Maybe talk about what is TIFF's role? You know, the central thing about TIFF, our core, hasn't changed since we started in 1976, which is that we are an audience festival. We're a festival for people who love movies, and we give you a riot of choice uh, every year at the festival to find the movies that you're going to love. Our most important award is still the People's Choice Award. Um, the filmmakers who come here, the journalists, the industry who come from all over the world, over 60 countries every year, they come to see how the Toronto audience responds to films. And that can be very predictive. Um, there have been many instances of films starting in Toronto, winning an award here, and going on to much greater success, going all the way back to movie like um, The Prince's Bride, which premiered in Toronto in 1987, Big Chill premiered at our festival, American Beauty premiered at our festival, all of these films that became really uh, groundbreaking and, and signature films for their era um, started in Toronto. Um, but the one that I remember from my early years with the festival um, that I was very much involved in, The Slumdog Millionaire, uh, which we brought to uh, the festival uh, as a, a little bit of an orphan film, uh, it had been made by one 
Hollywood studio, which had then dropped it because they weren't sure what to do with it. Uh, it was a movie by a British director, but set in India, partly in Hindi, partly in English, no recognizable stars. And they weren't sure it was going to do anything in the marketplace. It was going to go straight to video. But then another company, uh, Searchlight, Fox Searchlight, picked it up. And we brought it to the festival. And the audience just went wild for it. And then, of course, it went on to sweep the Oscars the following year. And that's been a kind of a pattern with our festival. Uh, films that start here and go on to do incredibly well. Well, as you say, very audience-driven, obviously. I want to ask you, Cameron, about the role of TIFF Lightbox. What is TIFF Lightbox? So TIFF Bell Lightbox is our building. It's an art house, a cinema, multiplex. We have five cinemas that are running all year round. So when the 11-day festival wraps up, we keep going at TIFF Bell Lightbox. We're showing brand new movies. We're showing retrospectives of classics and new restorations of movies that are really important to the history of film. We have talks all year round. We've got subscription series where you can come up uh, to the building um, you know, on Sunday mornings and see a, a surprise film and have a, a conversation about it with uh, someone who was involved in making the film. Uh, we've got youth programs, talent development work that we do to really uh, cultivate that next generation of writers, screenwriters, and filmmakers. All of those things happen at TIFF Bell Lightbox all year round, uh, including we're also host to other uh, festivals and events in the city as well, things like the Hot Docs uh, Festival, the Documentary Festival, the Imaginative Festival, the Real Asian Festival, many, many more uh, take place at our building as well. Please don't shoot the messenger, Cameron. I have to present two viewpoints from the cranky people that are sometimes out there. Sure. What do you say to the traffic complainers when the TIFF Festival happens for its 11 days? There's quite a bit of rerouting downtown. What do you say to those people who go, why is the roads all blocked? And just so Matt Damon can prance and preen. <laughs> um, so we try to to balance, you know, what everyone needs in the city, which is the ability to move from one place to another as easily as possible. But the fact that this is one of the city's major events, one of the country's major cultural events and business events as well. Um, in 2020, uh, over $100 million in, in business activity and sales of films happened at our festival. So it's a major uh, business event and a cultural event that happens every September. It's only the first four days of the festival that we uh, close a stretch of King Street, a few blocks of King Street. It does require rerouting of the King Street cars um, for those uh, four days. Uh, the TTC have been great partners in working with us to make alternate arrangements so people can still get to work and from work and wherever they need to get to during that time. It does take a little bit longer uh, if your path takes you through those few blocks uh, of King Street. But we also try to do everything we can to make the festival accessible to people, including uh, a free screening for TTC riders that happens uh, during the festival as a way of saying, you know, thank you um, and for accommodating those four days, and um, and and you know we want to want to give you a free screening and a chance to to get a taste of the festival as well. Sounds reasonable. We all got to work together. Exactly. I'm gonna give you one more cranky viewpoint, Cameron. Sure. What do you say to those? This is kind of not necessarily a TIFF thing, but the bigger industry thing: movies and film in Toronto. What do you say to those that resent the tax incentives and the financial incentives that, that our city offers all these production companies? Can you not make a case that production companies should be paying Toronto 
because we've mm-hmm. got such a unique infrastructure. We've got world-class resources. They should be paying us to come in. We shouldn't be giving them in- incentives or money back. What do you say to that kind of attitude? Well, listen, the the film production world is not my world, but it's adjacent, I would say. And what I do know is that it's a very competitive environment. Most of this business is coming from Los Angeles, from the big Hollywood studios and the streaming companies that are doing so much production. They can do it anywhere. And they go to places where it's economically and logistically uh, best suited for them. So they need good crews, they need good facilities, and they need a financial environment that's going to make sense for them. So many states in the U.S. are luring production away from Los Angeles and from California by offering incentives. Many countries in Europe and other places, South Africa and other countries, uh, offer incentives as well. And so to be competitive, you have to make it an attractive environment. That's certainly what I hear from the the major studios that exist here. I mean, the the production studios, places like Cinespace and others uh, that do that work. Um, In order to be competitive with the other places that are offering really um, great deals to come and have productions there, we need to do something similar uh, to stay in the game. And and let's be clear that, you know, this is, there's a lot at stake here economically. This is, you know, over a billion dollars in, in activity that happens in the Toronto area because of production, uh, tens of thousands of jobs as well. So it's not, it's not a small thing. It, there's, a, there's a major uh, economic benefit to having production here. Well said. Let's talk a little about the changing times as we've established. You and I are old guys who enjoyed our movies at Fairview Mall on a, on a screen. Today, as you know, so many platforms, streaming and YouTube. How does this affect TIFF? Well, it's, it's a kind of a mixed bag, honestly. Um, I like watching movies at home with my family and series as well, although I don't have the tolerance that some do for watching, you know, 30 hours of a series, but I will drop into some of the limited series that are maybe six, eight episodes. Um, And, you know, I like that doing that. I think we all like that convenience and the choice that we have at home now through the the streaming services. Uh, It's not the only way to watch movies, though, and there is uh, still something that is incredibly powerful, I think much more powerful from watching a great film in a movie theater with an audience and feeling that collective reaction, whether it's suspense that you feel together or laughing together with other people or crying together in a movie with other people. And I don't think that ever gets replaced. So I I feel like what a festival does can happily coexist with what is offered at home. At the same time, the streaming services are among the biggest investors in the most talented filmmakers out there. People like Martin Scorsese and Jane Campion and uh, Ryan uh, Johnson in the, ta- in the case of the Knives Out sequel, Glass Onion, they're making films uh, with streaming companies. Uh, we're glad to have a lot of those films uh, premiering this year at the festival, but it's not new. Um, one of the first films that was made by a streaming company, Beasts of No Nation, we presented at a festival many years ago. And so it's been a growing phenomenon that we can have the opportunity to see these films at home, but we can also show them at the festival. And we also have the opportunity to show them year round in Tiff Bell Lightbox. And for the last, uh, I'd say, two or three years, we've been presenting films like The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's movie, in Tiff Bell Lightbox to, to packed houses, by the way. Although the film might be available in a few weeks' time at home, people, many people want to see it in a movie theater because that's the experience that they really treasure. Certainly is a different experience. Another good point. 
on this podcast, we also want to know a, a follow-up, which is the role social media plays. So in the same way we change the platforms and the way we watch movies, social media has continued to grow in importance. TikTok, mm. Instagram, Facebook. How does TIFF embrace these social media tools? Well, it's funny because this refers back to your previous question as well about uh, how streaming platforms have changed. Because, So, for instance, we're premiering the new film that... Uh, includes Harry Styles as one of the stars. It's called My Policeman. It is from a streaming platform. And Harry Styles may be the biggest thing in social media right now as well. Uh, and when we announced that film, it was like, you know, this, our social media just blew up uh, because there was so much engagement from people all over the planet who were interested in anything Harry Styles. That he was make, he'd made a new movie. It was going to be launching in Toronto. Uh, he was coming here to uh, present the film as part of the, the team that supports it. Uh, and so that's, that's how you raise and maintain awareness these days is through social media. That's how people engage. Uh, one thing that's changed a lot with festivals uh, every festival, I think, is that the response to movies is no longer driven by uh, the trade publication uh, reviews that come out. They used to come out the morning after a movie premiered. Now it's instant. You know, as soon hmm. as the credits are rolling, you can go online during the festival and hear what people are, are thinking and feeling about the movie that's just premiered. And, and then that conversation just goes from there. And I find it, it's exciting in many ways. It's also unpredictable. And this, you know, you, I think everybody knows you can't control where the conversation goes on social media, but you have to be a part of it. And, and we've got a great social team at TIFF that um, I think is, has done great work on TikTok, on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of the platforms uh, to keep our audience engaged. Now, Cameron, you are a critic and a programmer at heart. I wonder how you balance the artistic side which I'm guessing is more important to you or was more important to you. How do you balance that artistic side with the business side of the film industry? Hmm. It's a great question and it is an ongoing balance that you're trying to strike. Um, I love film for what it can do. And when I was a critic, I thought really purely about what it did artistically. Uh, becoming a programmer and certainly in my role now, I think a lot about what a film can do to, to and with and for an audience. Uh, and so that means the impact that a film has on large numbers of people is very important. And we also assess that as we're choosing the films that we show every year. It's not just, do I think this is a beautiful piece of cinema, but is this a beautiful piece of cinema that's going to have an impact on an audience because of the story it's telling or how it's telling the story. Um, we're opening with a film called The Swimmers, which I think is the perfect example of that. It is a beautifully made film by a filmmaker named Sally El Hosseini. Very powerful story it's telling, true story based on two Syrian sisters who had to flee Syria as refugees. And they were competitive swimmers and they held on to that dream of competing at the Olympics. Incredibly inspiring story. The filmmaking is uh, terrific. It keeps you on the edge of your seat the whole time. But it's a story about migration and refugees and a very important subject that I think will have a large impact 
on audiences, especially in a city like Toronto, where half of us living here weren't born here. So I wanted to show it here. I wanted to give it the highest possible profile. So I invited the film for opening night and I'm thrilled that it will be opening. And it does all of the things that we want a movie to do here, which is to show you know, the highest level of craft and art, but also to show how films can reach large numbers of people. And that's how we stay relevant as a festival. Well, and certainly another reason TIFF is so relevant it has often been a key stop on the road to the Oscars. Do you have any predictions based on what you've seen? And by the way, Cameron, if I understand, you are part of the Oscars yourself right now. Yes, um, I was uh, just over a year ago invited to join the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Um, and I'm thrilled and honored to be a voting member of the Academy now. And uh, and and what's great is that it, it merges so nicely with my, my work here. So I get to see a lot of the films very early that will be Oscar contenders. And then later on, I'm catching up with the ones that I haven't yet seen and being a part of that process with all of the other members who are voting. And everybody in the world who follows the Oscars as well, whether they're voting for them or not, everybody's got an opinion, uh, which is kind of great. Um, I am the worst at making predictions, <laughs> so you, you I don't, don't know you don't if win I can your office you pool, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> you know, weirdly, I don't. No, um, look, I can. Uh, we have the premiere of the new Steven Spielberg film, The Fablemans, which is just a terrific film and a film that's going to be very meaningful for anyone who has grown up with Spielberg's films, going all the way back to Jaws and E.T. through Jurassic Park and Schindler's List and all of the films that have been very meaningful for us as moviegoers. Um, this is the story of the boy who became that director. And uh, it's incredibly powerful dramatically. Um, he can do things with film, with visuals, with sound, with time and how he unfolds a story that, that really very few other filmmakers can manage at his level. Um, so that, I think, has to be a contender. Um, but there are many others as well. Uh, there's a great film uh, that was at the Cannes Film Festival that we're also showing called Decision to Leave from South Korea by the great Korean director Park Chan-wook, which I think is terrific. And um, you know, I imagine that will be a strong contender for at least the International Film Oscar. But there are many, many others about documentaries and short films that, are, that will be up for prizes as well. I encourage people, since I'm kind of a bad predictor, just to come to the festival and find the ones that they think are going to win Oscars. Well, despite your apparently poor record in the past, Cameron, I'm, I'm counting on you for my office pool but i'm, I'm gonna okay. as you do as you're recommending i'm gonna check some out myself and make my own predictions great i want to get some of your memories of some significant what they call crazy tiff happenings of the past so if you have any thoughts or reminiscence on any of these 1987 the princess bride premiered as you had mentioned one of its cast was wrestler andre the giant and at seven foot four inches 520 pounds he needed a special seat to be constructed so he could enjoy the movie. True, false? Do you remember anything about that? You know, I wasn't there. I have heard about some uh, Princess Bride stories, including Andre the Giant stories. And look, so I can't verify that, but I would not be surprised. Uh, it, it sounds like it might have made sense. <laughs> 1991, premiere of The Fisher King. Nobody could find director Terry Gilliam. Eventually, they found him <laughs> down the street enjoying a Blue Jay game at the Sky Dome. 
So again, wasn't there for that one. Can't verify, but that sounds about right for Terry Gilliam. And what I will also say, you know, Terry Gilliam is known as a bit of a, a wild card in the movies. Um, there is a great book that uh, the Canadian uh, director and actor Sarah Pauly just uh, wrote called uh, Run Towards the Danger. Uh, and she worked with Terry Gilliam um, on a film when she was a child. And she tells that story in a chapter in the book and is an incredibly compelling reading about what it's like to work with a so-called wild man. It is uh, fascinating. In 2006, during a press conference for All the King's Men at the Sutton Place Hotel, actor Sean Penn thought it would be a good idea to have a smoke. However, it was and is illegal to smoke indoors in Ontario. Sutton Place Hotel was fined $605 for Penn's indulgence. Did Sean Penn not know he couldn't smoke or being the bad boy he is just not care? Um, I do remember that. I wasn't directly involved, but I do remember that. And um, Sean Penn, yes, would have known that smoking was not <laughs> legal indoors uh, at the Sutton Place Hotel at the time. I'm going to give you a last one last one, Cameron, if you'll indulge me. Also in 2006, for the debut of Borat, Sasha Baron Cohen showed up in character as Borat on top of a pull cart, being pulled not by horses, but by farm women. Also, the projector broke, apparently, during the movie, and uh, both Cohen, still in character as Borat, and Michael Moore came out of nowhere. They hopped on stage, did an impromptu Q&A to keep it going. But how do you react when something kind of outside the box happens? Uh, yeah, that that's a legendary TIFF story and uh, absolutely true. And, you know, sometimes technical snafus do happen uh, and we try to respond as quick as we can. We've got an incredible tech team at TIFF, I think the best in the world. And, you know, they're working behind the scenes to, to fix whatever needs to be fixed. And sometimes it takes a little time. And we were lucky that night that Borat was premiering uh, because both Sasha Baron Cohen uh, and Michael Moore are hilarious and um, got on stage and just kept the audience entertained until the picture was ready to go. You especially have had interactions with many famous celebrities. And I always find it interesting when you think of somebody and then you meet them. Is it meet your expectations or are you disappointed? I guess on the whole, were your expectations met or were you horribly disappointed by when you actually meet celebrities? You know, I'd say, first of all, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of expectations. Uh, I admire the work of a lot of actors and directors. They're human beings still. I don't, you know, put people on pedestals in that way. I admire the work in the way that I admire, you know, a great cook at a restaurant or somebody who can make a table really well. It's just, it's just a craft. It's a skill that you learn. It doesn't make you special necessarily. Um, but I have, I, I would say, the greatest respect for people who are, who've, who've mastered their craft, who have achieved a certain amount of success and even fame, and who are still considerate people who you can have a real conversation with. I've spent, for instance, uh, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with Keanu Reeves, uh, both here in Toronto when he had a film called Man of Tai Chi, uh, and also actually in China where I, I was visiting and he was making that film. Terrific guy and a Torontonian. And uh, I don't know if that was part of what rubbed off on him or if he just always had that, but just one of the most decent, generous human beings I've ever met. Um, I was a little bit in awe of Oprah Winfrey when I met her, I have to say. Yeah. She was here for the film Precious in uh, 2009. 
which she was an executive producer on. She's coming back this year. And um, she has a kind of a dazzling presence in person, as you might expect. She, she just seems to operate at a very high energy level. Um, and she's got these very sort of piercing, engaged eyes that she looks at you with, and you just feel like you're frozen for a second. Um, but she was just, again, a lovely person, very charming in person. And yeah, so I, I, I nearly always have great experiences. When people come here for the festival, they're here to work. Um, and, uh, and they're often very happy for the opportunity to present their, their films to our audience. I'm just curious from an operating procedure, and obviously some of this is uh, you're not going to be able to talk about, but I'm just curious, especially in today's world where we have, uh, unfortunately, a lot more risk and danger, how do you handle when celebrities come to Toronto and balance the needs of the fans as you talk? It's an audience-driven festival with the safety and personal needs of the talent that's coming in. Well, we have a very thorough security protocol uh, that we followed for many years, and we adjusted and adapted and um, evolve it as we need to, depending on what's going on. Um, and that's all in place behind the scenes. We don't talk about it in terms of any details, but I can tell you that we are um, very much uh, prepared uh, to address any security concerns. TIFF is obviously the biggest part of your life, especially right now, but there's much more to Cameron Bailey. What do you do for fun outside of your job? You know, I, I love music. I always have. I've been really glad in the last uh, few weeks to see concerts coming back to town. Uh, went to see the OVO Fest the third night, which was the Young Money reunion with Drake and Lil Wayne and Nicki Minaj. That was amazing. Um, went to see Elvis Costello uh, the following week uh, at Massey Hall. I hadn't been in Massey Hall for a concert since it, since it had been um, renovated uh, and upgraded, and it was fantastic. Uh, so that was really enjoyable. You know, I'm, you know, I've aged out of the the time when I would be going out to to live music <laughs> regularly, but now that it's back, I'm going to take every advantage. <laughs> Good, that's great. Now, if I can ask what part of town you live in, and if you have any favorite places to eat, and and Cameron, I'm looking for some hidden gems here. Oh sure, um, I live in the west end of downtown Toronto, um, and some of my favorite places would include um, a French restaurant called Le Baratin on Dundas West, uh, Rum Corner, actually also on Dundas West, but not as far west, which is a great uh, Haitian restaurant uh, with probably the best uh, rum uh, list of any, any place in Toronto. Um, there's a great restaurant close by to Tiff Bell Lightbox called Pie, uh, a Thai restaurant, which is terrific, which always seems to have lineups outside because the food is so good and just a great environment. It's a cool place to hang out. Um, yeah, those are three of my favorites. Albert's, Albert's Real Jamaican up on St. Clair. Yes. Uh, I've been going there, feels like, for most of my life. So <laughs> I, I, I never miss a chance when I'm in that neighborhood. And the big question for you is, what will you be doing on Monday, September 19th, the day <laughs> after the festival closes? You know, it's, it's a funny thing 
to experience and to try to describe. You know, it's like when the circus folds up its tents and and rolls out of town and you're just kind of standing there on the horizon that used to be full of activity and, you know, Ferris wheels and everything. And you're just kind of standing there just feeling that, you know, there, there is a sense of loss, this kind of sort of hollow feeling you have for a moment. But then you, you, you begin to, the, the memories begin to come back and all of the things that happen, because sometimes you just, they're happening so fast, you can't fully um, stop to appreciate what's going on. And then those memories begin to come back from the, the, the past 11 days. That's usually what I'm doing on that day. I try to just take some long walks or just, you know, some, occasionally I'll drive around and, and just reflect on what has happened you know, and and over the, the course of the next several weeks, you know, we do official post-mortem a- analyses of what we did right, what we can improve, all those kinds of things happen. But on the day right after, you just want to really let it sink in. So that's mostly what I do. And I, uh, I hope you'll take the chance to uh, jump on a plane or jump in your car and get out of town for a few days. Definitely. Yeah. I don't know where yet, but I often will try to take a a short trip after the festival. The fall's a good time to try to just see what else is going on in the film world. So traveling to other festivals around the world, whether they're in Europe or Asia or elsewhere, is something I like to do as well. Um, And uh, I'm curious, you talk about TIFF and it's not just the festival. It's it's an organization running all year. How soon do you start working on the 2023 version of the festival? You know, we're already working on the 2023 wow. festival. So it's kind of a rolling cycle of planning that happens. Uh, we never stop planning for future festivals. Some of the major elements in terms of the, the building blocks of next year's festival, we've already, we're already into discussions on. We get more heavily into it later in the fall and in the winter. Um, but we never stop planning because it's, it's a big event, requires a lot of people and a lot of thinking. Uh, and it always changes. It never stands still. Fabulous. Well, as we wrap up here, I want to ask Cameron, where can we best follow you and everything going on at TIFF? Thank you. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter when it comes to social media, although not not as active as I used to be, but I'm at Cameron underscore TIFF. Uh, and uh, whenever I have news that I can drop on Twitter about TIFF, that's where you'll find it. Fabulous. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time. I want to wish you all the best. The Toronto International Film Festival, September 8th to the 18th, and wishing you a great festival and continued success. Andrew, thank you so much, and thanks for taking the time for this conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. And to the listener, I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Cameron Bailey, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. 
Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network.